Welcome to the DGR Podcast. I'm your host, David Gray. Hey guys, David here. Welcome back to the DGR Podcast. This is episode number 75. I hope you're all doing well. I'm sitting here recording this intro, not the full podcast that that was previously recorded but I'm recording the intro in a hotel in Vancouver I feel a little bit like Ty Lopez if any of you have seen his his old YouTube videos we were going to record our intro sitting out in the balcony of our hotel maybe with a Lamborghini in the background or something like that but we were missing the Lamborghini so we came into the corner of a hotel room instead um, for today's episode I actually appeared on the Foot Collective's podcast as a guest and I wanted to share it here as well on our podcast because we spoke about a lot of things that I hadn't actually spoken about before probably on this podcast or not really on any guest podcast I hadn't been asked these questions so I think it was a really good conversation between both of us not just me obviously between with Nick as well so we spoke about feet obviously assessing feet training feet working with feet we spoke a lot about footwear uh, we spoke about working with different types of, types of clients and working with pro athletes as well. Um, we spoke about my definition of health, uh, which was a tricky one for me, actually. So that was that was an interesting question and something that I really had to think about. We spoke about, I'm um, just looking at my notes here, we spoke about college versus kind of continuing, continuing education. It's a question that I get asked all of the time. And we spoke about training balance a bit as, and, as well. So, um, and how I, how I think about that. So lots of good stuff here. Um, we just finished our course in Vancouver. I want to say thanks to Dave Leyland for organizing that and all the guys at Coast Performance Rehab. Uh, incredible group, sold out. That was actually, that set the record, that sold out before we actually released the tickets. Dave sold it out to his network uh, before we even made it available for sale. And we've gotten about, I think I've gotten at least 20 or 30 inquiries already since that workshop about could we come back and do another one in Vancouver. So hopefully we'll be able to come back again. Uh, We had a great course, tons of, it was just fun and I, I I think I'm getting a bit better at teaching the courses as we go along, making them just more practical, showing people different options, different variations uh, of exercises that I use, not being as, no, I don't want to say rigid or structured because I'm, I'm not the most rigid or structured person, but yeah, just opening up people's lenses to here's, here's, here's like a key exercise that I use, but now here's 10 variations and 10 options of that, that you can start to play around with and, and just have fun and don't be married to one single thing. So uh, so yeah, that was great. We have Montreal coming up next weekend. And yeah, apart from that, I think you'll really enjoy this episode. Please give it a share if you do. Uh, that's really the only way the podcast spreads and gets more traction is through shares because we don't, it's not like we advertise it or anything like that. So you are probably listening to the podcast because someone else shared it. So maybe you can share it and help someone else who might be interested as well. So yeah, I hope you enjoy the episode and talk to you guys soon. Yeah. And what would you say motivates your work today? I mean, you're doing a lot of things, you're doing workshops, you do the podcast, like you do a lot of stuff. It's a lot of energy. What would you say your primary motivator is uh, today? And has that, has that been something that's shifted since you first started doing this? Um, good question. And it's actually something I've been thinking about quite a bit recently because yeah, we are, we are busy with things. We do try to be as consistent as we can with our content and our workshops and programs and stuff like that. So I have thought about this quite quite a bit recently, and I think I have two things that are kind of motivating me. One is, whether I like to admit it or not, it's actually fear, because I worked in like the corporate world for a while. I went and did, I had a, I did a marketing degree. I worked in sales, and I was okay at those jobs, but I really did not like them. And I really did not make a good employee, probably, because looking back, I always had a problem, not not like arguments or anything like that, but I just didn't have a passion for what I was doing. And I would love to never have to work for anyone else again in that in that way. It's not that like, I, I don't mind being a contractor. I work with different organizations where we're helping an athlete and stuff like that. Like, I love that. I love collaboration, but just sitting in an office wearing a shirt and tie is just not for me. So I... Yeah, whether I like to admit it or not, I definitely have a fear of that. And I want to make sure that this works so I don't go back to that. So that's that's one thing. I, I don't recommend being motivated by fear, but 
it is a good motivator also. It is a good motivator. And same in rehab. Sometimes people will not do anything until the pain gets too much and now they have no choice. So that's kind of um that's kind of one thing. The other thing is I would really like athletes and just anyone really who wants to move and feel good to not have to go through a lot of the shit that I went through. So I had a lot of issues with my knees and my Achilles and stuff like that. And we got get a lot of clients now that and kind of what took me six years or eight years to try and figure out, we're often able to help people figure that out for themselves in a matter of weeks or months. And that and I don't just mean I don't say that to brag or anything. There's lots of great people that are doing that. So kind of it started off, it switched a little bit because it started off very much where I was trying to help a lot of individuals and now we're coaching and our kind of mentoring for coaches and therapists it seems like that's the best way to reach a lot more people because you train them up and obviously as you know yourselves they are able to go and use all these things and they have the tools as well so two motivators fear and then helping people and i don't know which one is stronger it kind of flips i think yeah that's that's a great answer and i think uh you know the notion that pain and you know fear might be a, a kind of a type of pain i don't know i haven't really thought about that that deeply but the idea that pain is the ultimate tool for transformation and the ultimate motivator right um it doesn't necessarily have to be and you hope that people don't get to catastrophic levels of pain before they're willing to change but i don't think many people would argue that pain is the ultimate tool for transformation in life it has been for me um and yeah i can appreciate that fear of living uh, a mundane boring life that just washes you by before you know it is uh is a real fear and I, I definitely share that fear so yeah appreciate those answers um yeah and i think you know you said at the start it's like it's almost like we're going from one world from the old legacy world of the way we treated where it's like oh you have a problem let's just look at that one spot let's strengthen uh, let's do some mobility um, and let's just make you feel better. Like it's all revolves around eliminate pain and really just old approaches that are very isolated and really aren't that empowering um, to this new way where it's like just educate people. And like you said, it's like you've spent all this time and energy talking to so many people, working with so many patients, having this deep experience. Um, you know, the fun part is being able to give people your cheat codes, right? Like you spend 50 hours learning something and you can convey really the essence of what you what you uncovered uh, in like 10 minutes to give someone a lifestyle ch- change that can like literally transform their health. Um, it might sound a bit sensationalistic, but I found that to be quite true. Um, and yeah, I think one goal with this podcast is I think some people in this space sometimes look at it as like your competitors, right? You have online programs, we have online programs. Um, but the notion that like the foot problem or lo- let's say lower body um, suffering, lower body related suffering is like a giant problem. Um, and we're all on the same team. And I think we can all learn better by having conversations and actually disagreeing on some things to kind of collaboratively uncover truth together. We can just understand a lot more um, and be a lot stronger together. So yeah, I mean, we want to foster collaboration and we appreciate people like yourself who are coming on here and, and also spreading the word yourself. And the other thing that resonates is like teach the teachers. That's how you maximize and scale your impact. Like di- the digital realm is a, is a totally new realm uh, in terms of the amount of people you can reach. But if you teach one teacher and they teach a thousand people in the end, you really scale your impact in a huge way. Um, so I think you're right, Nick. I think the people like the people that we're competing against really is think of the amount of people in the world that are taking painkillers for simple issues that they shouldn't be taking. They're they're going into not even podiatrists, let's say. I, I, I know some great podiatrists and I think orthotics can be useful for the right person at the right time, all this stuff, but they're going into sports shops and they're just getting on a treadmill. And they're just being given a, an a, an orthotic immediately as a result. So we're we're also kind of competing with people who are just always relying on manual therapy for everything. There's there's a lot of people in pain. All you need to do is go, and not just pain, just go outside and have a look around and see how people are moving. They're struggling. So I'm the same. We have people on our podcast who s- some people would say to me like, "Oh, you're a competitor of this person." Like we're we're really not and what what i say the way i speak about a foot or or an ankle or something like that might not resonate with people the way you speak about it might and vice versa so 
I think we can all learn from each other, help help each other. And there's a lot of people out there that need help. There is definitely not. We, we are not the competition, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, and we're not going to saturate this either because it's a no. giant problem to solve that we're like not even touching the surface of. So we need more of us. We need to collaborate more. Um, yeah. All right, let's get into some more specific stuff. So I'm always curious to see how people... Um, you know, deal with certain topics. So if someone comes to you and says, David, I've got plantar fasciitis. I've been told by a bunch of medical people that I have flat feet. Um, you know, what are you telling this person in your first session together and sort of, you know, the, the notion of plantar fasciitis and quote unquote flat feet would just love to hear your thoughts on that. And yeah, how that, how does that first conversation go with that person? Uh, it uh, so obviously it depends of course it depends but that's a crappy answer but uh it de- i will say it depends on it depends on what type of person they are it depends on are they very athletic because i've had some athletic type of people who've, p- who've picked up that issue are are super unathletic so i will always be kind of coaxing them in the direction with my explanation of like why why i think this is going on we, we don't know necessarily but i'll always be kind of coaxing them in the direction of where i want them to move if it's you need to learn to maybe move a bit more you need to learn to move a bit less my explanation around my assessment will be will be a bit different but in general how i look at a foot is aside from the load management stuff which is you're just doing way too much or way too little i look at a foot and and just say can it change shape that's my big question hmm. and that's the question that i try and take people out of the the minutia and i love getting into the minutia but I'm, when i'm working with coaches and therapists i try and just ask them in the beginning can this foot that's right there staring at you can it change shape this person brings weight into the foot and back out of the foot can it change shape because we wouldn't necessarily be super concerned with someone's neck position or shoulder position and all these things we might get information from that but we would just want to know can it move can it change shape and with a foot whether it's flat or because you could get a very stiff flat foot that cannot change shape you could get a very stiff very supinated foot that cannot change shape or you could get a flat foot that actually can supinate and pronate it looks like it can move pretty well but it's just set up in this kind of position to begin with so that's the first thing that i'm looking at can it change shape and when you're thinking of a plantar fascia if the foot can change shape, that means that I can move from a more pronated position into a more supinated position and back again. And really, then you know that the fascia is actually being able to get fully lengthened and fully shortened, or at least lengthening and shortening. So that's my first thing with it, with an issue like that. And that really goes for Achilles issues. It goes for sesamite issues. It goes for a lack of big toe extension all kinds of foot issues. My first question is kind of foot chain shape, and I'm not super concerned around how it actually looks and appears. Although you can get some nice information from that. I would love, I would, you, you'll see some of the best athletes in the world. Some of their feet look pretty nasty and they don't change shape that much, but they, they have, they seem to have enough movement there. They can get away with it. And also they've built a lot of strength. So that's my key question. Can the foot chain shape and everything else becomes very clear. If you ask yourself that, I think. Yeah, that's a great answer. And yeah, it's definitely a trick question because it's, um, you know, it's not one template fits all, but I love how you emphasize like function over just a static snapshot. I think a lot of people get caught up with the notion that they as a static snapshot, this is what my foot looks like and it has this problem. And I think a lot of professionals in the medical and rehab world are probably guilty of labeling people with these snapshot related um, labels. Um and it's just a really basic, almost lazy way of looking at it. It's like, I want to, I really care of what is your foot capable of doing, not how does your foot look in one specific moment in time? Um, yeah, appreciate that answer. And I, yeah, I think just the focus on function is something that uh, I was never taught in physio school, right? It was like, this, this is a picture of this kind of foot. This is how you treat that. And it said nothing about like, what, how does that foot actually move? How do those the 33 joints actually articulate? Uh, and really, that's where the juicy stuff comes from. So, um, feet and or uh, footwear and balance. I think you know, to me, it's like those are two super underrated areas, uh, both in the professional athlete world and also in just the everyday person, the realm of everyday people. Um, how do these two things factor into the patients or people that you work with? Are they on the menu as topics of conversation? How do you, uh, yeah, how do you approach them? Footwear and balance. Uh, so. 
on on the balance thing, I think I think balance comes from being able to organize our center of mass over the stance leg. So gate I, I kind of break the gate cycle down into like everyone does stance and swing. So we have we've stance and swing. Now we can drill into swing phase and start to uh, look at smaller phases within swing, and we can drill into stance and look at smaller phases within stance. But just as a whole, and definitely for the podcast, it, it, I think it's nice to just think stance and swing. And if you can get into right stance and you can get into left stance and particularly mid stance, that's where our center of mass is going to be stacked over that leg. And that is balanced to me. Now, you think about, you think, when you think mid stance, you would think about kind of having a slightly bent knee, having, um, you can start to think about foot pressures. So there's this kind of even enough pressure between the heel, the midfoot and the forefoot. And then between lateral and medial, there's even enough pressure there. Your head, your rib cage, and your pelvis should all be kind of stacked over that, which will allow you to keep your even foot pressure. So I think balance can become quite a, a tricky topic. Sometimes people confuse things about balance and, and get into the weeds about balance. But balance up ultimately comes from just being able to access mid-stance, which is super important. The cool thing about stance and mid-stance in particular is it's when you're com- super compressed on that side. So if I'm in on my right leg, my everything on my right side is compressing, which means everything on my left side is expanding and opening up and getting a chance to experience the opposite. And then I switch from one to the other. And really true balance is being able to go from right stance to left stance to right stance to left stance, which is ultimately like pronation, supination, pronation, supination. Um, so that's a, it's a super important skill to be able to to be able to train with people. Now, there's obviously the earlier phase of stance and then the later phase, but mid-stance is a key point where we're going to have a lot of balance. With regards to footwear, again, it definitely depends very much. Um, I like to get people training in their bare feet as much as possible. Uh, Particularly like in the gym, I like to get people doing some plyometrics. I like to get them doing squatting and hinging different work under where they have more heel pressure midfoot pressure pressure where their heel is off the floor just loads of loads of mixture of things balance drills everything there um when i try i try not to change people's footwear too much in the beginning unless they have like a ridiculous pair of of shoes on (laughs) it's just absolutely stupid like i'll I'll get them out of them but i try not to change them too much in the beginning because i want people for my my job for the most part is to help people experience the power of movement and trying to instill great habits into people and let's say i try to do a couple of foot related drills with someone who has a foot or an ankle problem or an achilles or whatever but we also changed our shoe and we don't, we've done that on, on, on the first session, then they might be able to convince themselves that it was purely the change in footwear hmm. that was the thing. And actually the drills that we did were, were maybe useless. And it could have been a mix of both. It could have been whatever. So I like to make one change at a time. And whenever I can, I'll, I'll try and instill good habits around movement. And I can deal with the footwear problem like a little bit later on and maybe get them into something with a wider toe box, um, different things like that. Um, so yeah, I do like to get people barefoot when, when we can, but I don't rush towards it. And I also appreciate that some, sometimes a good shoe with an arch support, or I don't even want to say support with, with a little bit of an arch reference in it can be helpful, particularly for people with very supinated feet, because if people are super supinated and super locked up feet, particularly around the midfoot, what you'll often see is they have a very poor ability to actually even sense the floor because they can't really pressurize someone with a very stiff locked up midfoot in a supinated foot. They struggle to get into mid stance, which goes back to the balance thing. And I hope I'm not going all over the place here. Yeah, no, you're good. You're good. They struggle to get in there because that's where our most amount of pronation will occur. So they really struggle to get in on top of their foot and pressurize their midfoot. And sometimes if you take a shoe away from them, their, their midfoot, their arch, their medial arch in particular, is so far away from the floor that now their brain can't sense it at all. And so sometimes an arch support in a shoe, not to block pronation, it's actually the opposite, to help the, the, the brain feel that middle of the foot, feel that uh, inside of the foot. So now, now that they can actually move into pronation can be good. And I have seen some people who have been 
kind of taken away from from their footwear, put into barefoot shoes, or, or gone barefoot. And I've seen I've seen some people get worse, and it, it would be more so usually more so the more supinated people actually stiff supinated foot uh rather than the pronation which i think is counterintuitive to what a lot of people would think yeah and i think with footwear i mean our approach is always trying to get people to less footwear um but it has to be paired with more foot right like you have it's it really footwear kind of boils down to load management right if someone's used to this um supportive footwear and you completely remove that you might just overload their system or create a bunch of uncertainty right and the reaction is put a bunch of spot welds in the joints because we don't know what the hell's going on on the ground um and yeah it's always a delicate balance of like where is someone at what's their current level of function and what are you trying to accomplish because like you said if you introduce 10 variables at once not only may you confuse the system, but you actually can't isolate like which thing is having the most effect. And that doesn't give me much useful data if I, can, if I can't actually isolate and figure out what's making the difference. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people, you know, on Instagram, a lot of people think, oh, we just tell people to go barefoot or wear natural footwear. And I think, you know, obviously Instagram is not really a place for super nuanced dialogue, but no. <laughs> it is, uh, you know, nothing can be said outside of context with any level of certainty. You know, everyone loves to ask, oh, what do I do? What shoe do I wear? It's like, well, I need to ask you a whole lot of questions to give you direction. But here are things you can ask yourself to consider, you know, are you ready for this? Do you want to do this? Do you understand the trade-offs you're making? Um, but I think in general, people are just being pushed. It's like, okay, let's put you, you have foot pain, let's put you in a supportive shoe. Oh, your pain came back, let's put you in more support to the point where they're literally wearing like, you know, an air cast on their foot and they can't even feel the ground. And then it's like, okay, we got to unwind this a little bit because you're essentially starting to rely on this external thing, just like a pain, uh, pain drug. Um, and, but it is a, it's not the why it's the how it's like the, how there's a lot, whole lot of context to kind of consider. Um, and yeah, in the pro athlete space, it's so, it's becoming more interesting now. Like even with yourself, I'd be curious working with pros. Um, the pro athletes I've worked with have always surprised me in that they are, the most gifted and hardworking people, but they're also the best compensators. Like they're the hardest ones to give a screen and have like a, make the invisible visible because they're just so good at, okay, if they don't have it here, they're going to find it from here and their bodies master, uh, just masterfully compensate so that you can't really see where the chinks in their armor are. What has surprised you most or, or um, you know, has been most enjoyable or just surprised you most about working with pro athletes? How's that experience been? Um good question i think you're definitely right about the compensations i i call I, I have three words for that i have a compensation which i try i try not to use that much anymore even though it does make sense but it is i think people start to associate that with a negative hmm. which it's not uh it's certainly not in my view because they are able to still play their sport at a right. very high level obviously yeah, it's much an adaptive better than, response exactly so i try to I, I appreciate the word compensation and it's not like a it's not like a hard no for me. I use it. But I, I try to use I think I think sometimes a better word is just a strategy. This mm. is how they this is how they access their internal rotation, this is how they access their external rotation, their pronation, their supination. It might be a more e version than pronation or whatever, different things. And then the other the third word is amplification. So if you if you need, if you're a pro athlete who's moving very, very, very fast, let's say, you, you have time constraints on you. So a lot of sprinters, I've worked with some really good sprinters who have very, very little ankle dorsiflexion. Like if you ask, if you look at them doing a, if you ask them to do a bodyweight squat, there is no way in hell they will squat down on their heels. They won't get their butt on their heels. And it's because they're so tightly wound because they need a lot of tension in their body and they need a lot of pre-tensioning. The whole scale of, let's say, being a sprinter is being able to pre-tension because I can't wait for my foot to hit the ground to be able to then turn on all of my muscles. So they, they're very, very tight and for, for a good reason. So I think a lot of the time you will actually see a lot of very good sprinters, for example, set up with a very pronated foot. It looks like a super flat foot to begin with because they have such short ground contacts. And for, for me, at least this kind of mid stance and max propulsive position where we push the most, it's not in, in the triple extended, like push off position. It's where, where we're working hardest is where we're, our body is stacked over our foot. And that's where naturally all of us should be in our most pronated state. 
Um, before that earlier stance and later stance would be more supination. So in the middle is more pronation. Now, if you think about a sprinter that only has a super, super, super short amount of time, a good sprinter, not someone crappy like me, but someone super fast, they are going to maybe, okay, I, I, I don't have that much time to set, to set up. To, to move from supination to pronation. So guess what I'll do? I'll set up in more pro- pronation to begin with. My body is set up there. So now I start to think of that maybe as not necessarily a compensation, even though you might see it as that or where they're rolling the outside of the foot off. I might just see it as this is a way of amplifying the strategy that they're, that they're using to get more push and to get it happening quicker and sooner. So what I see with great athletes is very similar things than everyone else that i work with super similar i think a lot of people will try to come up with fancier and fancier drills for great athletes and actually often they need the same basic things that everyone else needs the the big difference is that they adapt really fast they adapt faster um they they will learn skills super fast now that's still i still don't think that means you need to rush on to advanced drills and all this stuff because the other thing is that they have a very strong stimulus coming from their sport all of the time which is kind of pushing them back into the, the direction of the amplification or the strategy or the compensation so a lot of the time yeah i just think they're cool to work with they adapt really fast they learn really fast I'm lucky enough to get, I know there's a mix of, of athletes, obviously different sports, but I'm lucky enough to get people who are, I, I don't have to work, worry about the buy-in too much. If I decide, like, I think we should work on some breathing or some foot mobility or whatever. They've kind of sought, they've kind of sought me out in the beginning mm. and I have that buy-in and I do have empathy with people who maybe work in, within the organizations or within the clubs who are trying to get convinced that some of the athletes to do this stuff and they could not care less about it. So uh so yeah I, I i appreciate that that can be tricky but that's sometimes the good thing with having a bit of a social media platform or whatever where you attract people who are interested in your work and uh they're great people to work with yeah and the notion of just self-selecting for people who are ready um and don't need to be convinced is very attractive because i mean you as a professional as a coach you know, like when I work with someone, I don't, I, I actually want to learn from every person I work with and I don't want to be wasting my energy trying to get them to do something they don't want to do. I don't want to do any of that anymore. Um, and just this notion that when someone comes to see you, the fact that they're keen and open-minded and curious and willing allows you to actually get data from them to see how they're moving, to see how their movement changes. And if you're spending all your time trying to get them to do something, like pushing a rock uphill, it's not enjoyable for either of you. And it's like, okay, well, come back and see me when you're ready, when you actually want to do this. And sometimes that takes an injury. Sometimes that takes like a performance um, wall that they can't uh, that they can't get over. And yeah, I just I couldn't agree more about the the um, basic drills, even for advanced athletes. And what I found is that their kinesthetic awareness in their body is sometimes like really deep, like really, like you can see them thinking deeply about something incredibly simple. And it's almost like they're mapping their body and really like they get a lot more data from their body um, than the average person. So even a basic drill given to like, you know, you know, a 50 year old versus a 25 year old professional level athlete, um, they'll get different things from it. But it doesn't necessarily mean that that drill is below the threshold of that elite level athlete. They just will take a deeper, like they'll go deeper with the awareness and the and the mental energy that they put into it. So, yeah, that's a really, um, that's a I really couldn't agree more. Good I'm point. really with you. I'm really with you on that. And they often just need to be given the the awareness or the space or the confidence or whatever to just actually slow down because their body is wound for high performance it's wound for tightening up and pre-tensioning and co-contractions and the strategy that they're using if they're a tennis player or a sprinter or a runner or a footballer like that that strategy and those patterns are so deeply embedded into their body and they're used to creating tension a lot of the time so actually sometimes the most basic quote-unquote drills even though i don't even like using that phrase they are the best they just give them a chance to step back to tune into their body in a different way and it can make a big difference and this is where like professional sport isn't isn't about health that's that's important like even me playing at an okay level in ireland in gaelic football and hurling 
I wasn't healthy necessarily when I was doing that. I looked healthy. I was in good shape. My heart was strong and stuff, but I was playing in pain all of the time. And a lot of people are, and anyone who knows who plays at a good level knows like you're not going to be ever feeling 100%. But there does, so, so sport and health, performance and health are not the same thing, but there does come a stage where if you push so far towards the performance and you limit your health, then your health is going to start to push back and limit your performance. So they need such, they often just need small inputs or big inputs in small ways into their body that just brings them back a tiny bit on the health spectrum, gets them back in tune with their body, gets them to feel things in a slow, relaxed manner. And that can nudge for, forward the performance aspect because what is super underrated on Instagram, on social media, I think, is just how important feeling good actually is. Just how many good things can happen when you just feel good. It's not spoken about. It's spo- strength is spoken about. Mobility is spoken about. All these fancy things are spoken about. Feeling good is underrated. I, I completely agree. And I like, I like the way you said that because I've always sort of um mentioned that there is a fundamental trade-off where the at the elite level of sport the trade-off you're making is actually health because if you're completely healthy and you feel great all the time you're probably not doing what the next athlete is doing to be one step above you in performance but i never thought about it in in the notion that if you go too far towards that side the health deficit actually begins to limit your performance so it's like the balancing that fine line of like you know, doing enough on the performance side and acknowledging the trade-off you're making, but not doing it to the point where there's huge consequences on your performance. Because, I mean, if you're hurt, it doesn't matter how good of an athlete you are, you can't play. Um, And yeah, and even back to that sprinter, the sprinter who can't get into a, you know, barefoot bodyweight squat, resting squat position. Is that something you address? And it's kind of a trick question because obviously it always depends. But um yeah, that person comes to you and says, I want to be a better athlete. I want to unlock performance. I want to become more durable. Is that something you work on getting him or her into being able to do? Or is that something that you acknowledge like the trade-off we're making to make you a really powerful sprinter is that you're going to be missing some of these fundamental human movements. And maybe that's on the menu for later. Um, but is that something you dive into or is um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's a good question. And I get asked that a lot. Every workshop, we're always asked, like, okay, if we do, if I do this with a, with a great athlete, and we, we don't just work with athletes, we work with lots of people, but if, if I do this with a great athlete, like, is it gonna, is it gonna mess up their sport? And I, I just, I actually think it's an e, it's a, it's a, it's an impossible question to answer, but it's also an easy question in some ways because you're not gonna wake up one day. So you're not gonna, okay, they come in, they can't squat past 90 degrees, and then, you do a drill and the next day they can always squat past 90 degrees. They just have it. I think there's a continuum there. And particularly, I suppose me, I'm lucky because I don't have to make too much of a trade-off. I work a bit more in the rehab space. And even the athletes that I end up programming for that are, are not injured, I actually get a large contingent where that kind of injured, but not really athlete that just, and client in general that just fall in there that don't feel so good. And, Usually they have things that, yeah, I've, I've just moved too far. I've lost too much movement in this direction and we need to get it back. So it's not really a hard question for me, but I appreciate that it might be a hard question for someone else that's working with an athlete who they're, they're not really having issues. They're performing pretty well. They just want to push that more. Maybe they want to squat a bit deeper to build a bit more strength in those ranges. And I would say, it's fine if you're not stupid with how you do it. If you're not trying to push them, you're, you're, you're trying to be aggressive and you're negligent towards just a, a nervous system and a body, which some, some people are. But I think if you're just a good, like a decent coach, you're not stupid with things, you can nudge people further and further, like just along the path, but it's going to take time. You're, but I think this is coaching. This is training. There's no start or end point. There's, it's a continuum where one day someone comes in, they feel a bit tight or they can't get into it in as deep. The next day, it's a little bit more. It's not re- There's never really a beginning and an end. And there's always this little continuum of just figuring out, getting to know your client, playing around, see what feels good, opening up a little bit of space where they hopefully need it. Yeah, your feet are like smushed together from wearing basketball shoes and they're 
like you're just you're you've 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 sprained your ankle 20 times in the last two years okay we're going to work on some ankle drills some gentle dorsiflexion plantar flexion drills open up your midfoot open up your toes a little bit but they're still going to be a bit smushed because they're still playing 50 games that season so right. i think uh, yeah i think they're that our stimulus is going to combat the stimulus that they're getting from their sport and from our our lives and yeah for respectful of it i think it's i think it's fine yeah i agree i think there's a difference between wanting to make someone a more well-rounded durable athlete without making a trade-off in their performance and over optimizing something that you shouldn't be optimizing mm-hmm. and not acknowledging the trade-offs you're making right it's like oh yeah we're gonna get you squatting because it's good for you to be able to squat but now all of your elasticity and power transfer when you're sprinting is gone it's like well that's probably not a trade-off they want to make so um yeah the other thing i found too is when i started you know, involving the people I was working with in my thought process, it was, a, they understood things a lot better and they were actually able to give me better feedback when they were doing things. And it's something I wish I had known way earlier on, like two things that looking back uh, as a physio, you know, cause I, you know, what led me to do, to create the folk collective was like, I don't actually understand feet. I can't even fix my own feet and I'm supposedly the knower um, this is like creating a really deep inner conflict and I just have to figure it out. Like I have to erase any notion of me knowing what the hell I'm doing and start from scratch and do my own experiments with a completely blank slate. And, you know, it was kind of painful, right? Cause you realize, oh shit, I just spent all this time and money learning something that I know is actually ineffective and not true. You know, one of the things was I used to treat according to school, I used to treat areas in isolation. Like I would treat the knee in isolation. I would treat the low back or the ankle. And now that I look at any lower body issue as a, as a, now that I look at the lower body as a, as a integrated system made up of subsystems where no subsystem can be optimized independently of the others. I look back and I'm like, wow, how much time did I waste with people? Look, just doing the, the one thing with the one area. Um, and that was one thing. And then the other thing was that I just didn't explain to people my process of thinking, okay, well, this is what, because I think people come in and they're like, well, this person knows everything. They're just going to tell me what to do. And what they don't realize is like, I'm guessing every time I'm making an educated guess because I may have more information or know what information to get out of you. But once I started saying, well, okay, this is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm hearing. This might be something that works. Let's do an experiment and try this. People were so much more open in their willingness to try things and to be involved in the process. Um, what is your impression like? What's the biggest thing that you've learned, um, or what's your biggest insight since you first started doing this? If there is any big one of you know something you can't believe you used to do and now you do differently, I'm always curious about that. Mm, that's a good question. Um, it's probably it's probably similar to yours there, Nick. Where it's just yeah, getting people more involved being very open from the beginning that i don't have all the answers every every single person's body is different and we're gonna kind of fuck around and find out we're gonna see what happens uh, in a respectful way yeah together exactly and i think um i think people are coming in usually it's changing but the medical system the health system the training system particularly medical and health people are trying to outsource their thinking and their body to other professionals and just presuming okay i have this problem you have i have x problem you have y answer yeah and we have bought into that as a society and different cultures but i think we're very similar all all around the world i've been to america teaching workshops australia and every place i go they always say oh it's so shit here how we treat it's so shit how all this stuff works i'm like it's fucking it's the same everywhere so i don't know if i'm allowed to curse but it's it's the exact it's exact (laughs) uh it's the same everywhere everyone thinks they have it worst in ireland we always think like we go to to the states imagine how well they do things they're so far ahead and then you go over there and you're like nope (laughs) (laughs) people have the same it's just more expensive it doesn't mean it's better exactly exactly so um so yeah just involving people more not i don't want them to outsource their their thinking to me or their body to me completely i want us to work together on it and that does come with a bit of experience and also confidence which is tricky to begin with because you want to give your whole self you want to give everything you want to fix someone who in five minutes you want to be the fixer immediately and actually when you start to strip that away you realize okay you are a very complex person with a whole history of 
injuries, of beliefs about movement, of training, of um, your your life, basically. And we're going to figure things out as we go along. I do have like key skills that I like people to be able to do with their bodies um, that I think are generic, that most people should be able to do in some way or another. But I try to not make assumptions, basically, is what I'm going to say. I try to not assume that this person going in is going to need this drill, and I would have done that in the past. I think I see a shoulder that's, okay, someone's coming in with a shoulder problem, a hip problem, a foot problem. Okay, I I assume they're going to have this, and I'm going to try these three exercises. And we're kind of taught to think in that way, and now I just try try my best not to make assumptions, even though I still do, but I try my best. And that's been very helpful for me over the last couple of years just a blank slate let's see what happens yeah i think it boils down to curiosity too because curiosity it's almost like an ego check automatically at the door where it's like if you're curious then you're partially admitting that you don't know and you want to figure out and you need more data to actually make a good um a sort of assessment or decision and i think some assumptions like i think pattern recognition and the ability to observe movement and actually get a lot of high fidelity information is a really powerful skill. So I think not, I think some assumptions are probably valid, especially if you're constantly getting them, um, you're constantly matching them to reality and saying that was a safe assumption to make. It didn't actually lead me astray. But yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think too many people look at the snapshot, just like the flat foot thing, right? They look at the snapshot and they're like, oh, this person's gonna need this, this and this, I've seen this before. But just even something as simple as the baggage someone's bringing in about the terminology that's been assigned to them. If you don't actually acknowledge that and dive into that, they might have that stick on them forever. And it might actually limit their potential to sort of move beyond whatever label has been applied to them. And, you know, these days I try and say as few diagnosis as I can in terms of terminology and just use it as a challenge to explain how do I explain plantar fasciitis to someone without without saying the word plantar fasciitis and treating them like they're six years old. And ironically, that's way harder to do. (laughs) Um, But it's so powerful because that is actually the language people need in order to understand and feel at peace with like, oh, it's not this big medical term that means I'm broken and I'm doomed. It's actually just this simple thing where I'm overloading here and I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing here. And that is like this action-oriented thing where it's like, okay, if I start doing those things, I actually have some sense of agency in changing my body. And I think one thing people underestimate is like the body's ability to change. Um, and I, I think just the legacy treatments that we do, uh, in the disease care system are a great illustration of that, where it's like, okay, you have this thing, we're going to apply this fix. It's like, okay, but what about like the hundred unintended consequences of how the body's going to adapt in alignment with that now that that external thing's there? So, yeah, I think, um, I think it's very, the sign of an intelligence person is the willingness to change. And I think all the smartest people in the space that I've talked to are like, not certain about anything, but have a lot of experience that contributes to their confidence in truth, right? It's yeah. like, I'm very confident in gravity, but if someone shows me an instance where gravity doesn't exist, I'm open-minded to being like, maybe I was wrong. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it's just like, I think the term X, ex- I used to hate the term expert um, because all the experts I saw were people that were like very book smart and had this title that they self-imposed. And I was like, I don't actually think you understand this that deep, but now that I look at it, Uh, I think reclaiming the term expert by like through proof of ability, like don't tell me what degrees you have, show me what you've done in your body and how you've helped people. I think that's actually a term that needs to be reclaimed. And um, yeah, what are your thoughts on just the notion that anyone can become an authority on an area of the body through deep personal experience and, you know, the perspective of someone comes to you and says, David, I want to get into the work you're doing. I don't have any formal education. I used to be a plumber. But my life was transformed by what you did to me. And I want to get into the space because I want to help people as well. Um, What's your take on university degrees versus alternative paths to learning and personal experience? Like, how do you, you know, you can't tell that person what to do. But Jim, the plumber, what do you tell him if he wants to get into your work? And he's like, where do I go next? Do I go to school? What degree do I get? What do I do? Um, Yeah. How do you talk talk to Jim? it, it's tricky because there are, there are people are at different phases of their their life. I kind of went on an alternative route around it, where I went like studying with all these great people. Then I had to come back and get my certs and stuff like that, so that I could actually work with people. So now, when a, a younger person comes to me, and, and it's not just younger, like a, anyone, but they have to be in the right frame of mind. Where okay, I I do think it's very helpful to go and spend four years learning to be a physio. 
And I do think you'll lo- learn lots of good stuff. You'll learn some anatomy, not necessarily functional anatomy, but you'll, you'll know the names of stuff at least. <laughs> um, <laughs> which depending, maybe you can tell you that not. too, though. It's real expensive Google. to do that in school. <laughs> it, it is. In, in Ireland, it's better because we don't spend that much on our education. So we're, 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 we're a bit better, but, um, you will learn to diagnose. You will learn that maybe, like, because diagnostics is important. If you're working with uh, chronic injuries, chronic, or sorry, acute issues or, or anything like that, if you're working in a sports team, you want to be able to say, okay, this is actually probably more of a hamstring than an adductor or, or XYZ. So diagnostics are important. Being able to put hands on people and have an insurance for that is is can be very, very helpful. So I just think the I think the issue, the schooling system is a mess. Like, it, no, no matter what you do, I went and did a business degree when I was younger and I came out. And then when I wanted to start this business, I couldn't even open the fucking business, never mind run the business. <laughs> so, like, no matter what, you get experience in the field by learning and meeting people and, and working and, and, and just getting up. your hands dirty and fucking up. Exactly. So, you get, your, you get your hands dirty. That's how you learn. So, the schooling system is a mess. No matter what way you chop it, I don't care who. Who, who wants to argue with me, you will learn better on the job. But that doesn't mean that you you might not learn a, a, a ton in, in there and then be able to carry it out and learn more as you go. My issue with it is people going doing four, five, six-year degrees is when they come out believing they know everything. Yes. And you see that a lot. And now it's like, okay, now I'm an expert because I just learned all this stuff. I read all these books and my learning is done. That's where I have the issue. So if someone is willing, because I do, I get this question pretty much every day on social media. Like I would love to work the way you work and blah, blah, blah. And I'm sure you get that as well. Um, I was, and they're saying, I'm thinking of signing up, signing up for this physio course and all this stuff. I would say, you don't you don't necessarily have to do that if you want to use manual therapy and you want to work with a certain type of people person you may have to but either way i don't think your learning will be ruined if you spent four years going there as long as you appreciate and understand that when you leave really you're only getting started then you're not the finished product and that is think a lot of not just physios but therapists fall into the trap of believing okay i am the finished product now and i'm going to walk in here and i have healing hands and they're going to fix everyone and they get a very rude awakening very quickly and they go two ways from there it sends them on a learning journey or it it forces them to lock up even more and double down on what they, they they thought they knew but they end up very unhappy very very unhappy not enjoying their job maybe seeing 10 or 15 clients a day or maybe more and imagine doing that knowing deep down that i'm not really helping people that is not a good life to live not for me at least i couldn't agree more and i think the golden handcuffs of having letters next to your name from a degree are like you said the notion that you are the knower and that there's no more work to be done to improve your knowledge or deepen your understanding And also, I think a lot of people get into this scenario where the business model of treating symptoms can actually be something that prevents people from actually moving into an alternate system, which is helping people understand how to move and empowering them with being able to understand their own issues and really work within the process of health instead of treating it as like these discrete events where like I have this injury, I do this rehab, I'm good, I get another injury. It's like this weird, this weird, um, acceptance that this is just the process this is the path and there's nothing i can really do to make a more durable body so i don't get injured as much and um yeah i mean like you said that mundane lifestyle of treating 15 people a day doing something you don't fully believe in i mean like we said at start pain is the ultimate transformer and i think a lot of these professionals are starting to kind of understand that yes it's going to be painful for me to really acknowledge that i don't know everything and that i might have to change my business but the pain of staying the way I am is greater than the pain of doing that. Therefore, I'm ready to do some, have an alternative perspective. Um, one question I really like to ask people because I think it's such a subject. It's a term we throw around all the time. It's extremely subjective. We ask this to everyone who joins our digital community. So we've had like thousands of people submit their answers. And it's, it's interesting to read everyone's subjective answer, but also interesting to see the general threads that we can tease out where it's like, it seems like a lot of people think this is related to that. 
Um, how do you define health if you have to do it in two sentences? How would what would David Gray's definition of health be? Uh, I won't hold it to you or reserve the right to change your mind anytime you want. But I'm always very curious to see how people frame it and what people include in that. Mm. I'm really bad at these type of answers and questions. I'm <laughs> terrible at them. Uh, every time I've done a podcast when there's one of these questions at the end, I, I mess it up. Um, no wrong answer. What is my... Yeah, but you want to be smart on it. You want to say, you want to say, you want to say something profound. I also um, think people underestimate the value of a pause. Like whenever I listen to Elon Musk, there's like sometimes like a 30 second pause and I know <laughs> some magical shit is happening in that cerebrum of his. And I'm like, I'm not in a rush because I know the longer it takes, the more goodness is being created. This might be creating more pressure for you. But yeah, I think, uh, I his think pa- his yeah. pause is because he's tapping into like AI or something yeah. like that. He <laughs> yeah. has some computer program yeah. running. Elon the robot is uh, tapping into the AI database of the world. <laughs> exactly. Um, for me, health outside of the not being not being sick, let's say. So I'm not. I don't have cancer. I don't have a disease. I don't have anything like that because you can have all the definitions of health that you want. But as soon as one of the, you you get told, like uh, your your idea of health is going for a walk every day and going for a swim and all this stuff, but you walk into a doctor's office and you get told, okay, you have this diagnosis and you actually do, then your only idea of health really is pretty much not having that anymore and right. staying alive. So I think that's important. And I know someone at the moment who is quite sick and like her definition of health now is is not having cancer Mm. so i think that's important and that helps us be maybe grateful for what we actually do have so i think that's that's the first and i'm going to put that aside so my definite definition of health is being being not answerable to anyone else that's probably number one, not necessarily like my family and my friends and stuff, but not in a job where I have to wake up at this exact time. I have to do this. And more than anything else, being accountable so that if I do good things, like I get the rewards. And if I do bad things, I get I, that, that's that's on me. Whereas in other jobs, if I did good things, like my boss got the rewards or the, the company got the rewards. And if I did bad things, that was also on me. So I want, I want access to the upside and the downside. And I'm happy to take both if there's, a, if there's a, a, an upside and a downside. So that's what I want access to. That's, that's probably a big one. I need to be physically and mentally challenged pretty much most days i would say not necessarily every day there's days and weeks where i just need to shut off and do absolutely nothing because i've smashed myself too much but i need to have some kind of a physical challenge at the moment that's coming in the form of uh jiu-jitsu for me which i just started not too long ago um and then mentally i think my work gives me that uh on a very very regular basis and then the only other thing that i really need in my life is relationships with my friends and family and i don't need a lot i'm not someone that needs to have big parties or anything like that but i am quite family orientated we lived in sydney in australia for a few years and that was amazing and i had friends over there and i I had kind of some family over there as well but it wasn't home and we we wanted to move home so um so yeah physically challenged mentally challenged uh not sick that's the most important thing i think um and yeah, just mostly re- having some good relationships for me. That's a healthy life, and oh yeah, and of course, like my autonomy. So that's my that's my idea of a healthy life. I could happily live with nothing else, and I would be good. Amazing. I like the start of that definition because, like, when you were saying having access to the upside and the downside, um, it to me, it's like the term that embodied that was just like personal responsibility. Like, I if I do something good, I get the benefit. If I do something that has a net negative, then I am okay facing the consequences because it's all, it's like radical ownership and personal responsibility for your experience. Um, and I think that is, that's a big part of health, right? That's a big part of why, you know, people have essentially been sold this thing that you can, like you said, offshore the responsibility, like your health is your doctor's responsibility. Your health is your physio's responsibility. And I think it's just like a big lie. It's a big scam. Because they can never be responsible for your well-being. Um, And so long as you think that, you're always going to be essentially forfeiting 
responsibility for taking ownership of your experience and what you do with your body. Um, what's the biggest thing you've changed your mind on in the past 12 months? This is a question I often ask people. It doesn't have to be a big thing. It could be a small thing, but what's, what comes to mind as like the biggest thing that's meaningful enough to mention that you've changed your mind on in the past 12 months? I'm going to have to pause again. That's okay. Um, I don't know. That's okay. You tell me. You you answer for me first. You might give me some inspiration. I mean, this was a... Well, my definition of health is the process of learning how to take better care of myself and how to sustainably maintain all six pillars. Like we use the framework of the six pillars of movement, sleep, food, the mind, community, and money. Um, And just the notion of health being the process of learning how to upgrade those pillars in my life and triage, like which one needs the most love and how do I, how do I approach this with curiosity about how I can upgrade that? Um, The biggest thing I've changed my mind on in the past, this is actually super recent. Maybe it's just the most fresh in my mind, but you know, I've always, I kind of got pissed at one point where people, I, I would hear people recommend transition shoes. Like someone's going from a very, let's call it a maximal unnatural shoe, highly cushioned, super stiff, super pointed. Um, and they want to get to a point where they're comfortable barefoot. They want to wean away all this stuff so that they can reclaim a little bit of foot function. I would often make it very simple. It's like buy a pair of natural shoes, gradually start wearing them more and more and more. Um, and that it really is that simple, right? Like, cause I found people got bogged down in the minutia of what's a good transition shoe. What's my first transition shoe. They'd end up buying like 10 different pairs of shoes to get there. And it's like, well, you've just bought a bunch of shit that you actually, every single shoe you adopted confused your body a bit more because it was less of this, but not quite natural. And now your body's recalibrating. So that was always my approach. And then Jim, one of the other leaders at TFC kind of sent me a message, even this was like two days ago. And he's like, He gave me this example. It's like, okay, someone's got really stiff feet. They're in a hugely built up shoe. Is it better that they buy like a a foot shaped shoe, which still has support, which still has some cushioning, which isn't like the most flexible thing ever that they're actually able to spend like three hours in or to buy a pair of Vivos that I can wear for 15 minutes and they got to take it off because they're sore. It's like, I I think the biggest thing I've changed my mind on is I need to take a more nuanced approach in terms of like presenting the transition to natural footwear where it's not just about buy a pair of straight up natural shoes and then progressively start wearing them because the load management may be not as wise to do that versus maybe not 10 transition shoes, but like what's your next step instead of like what's the ultimate step work into that. What's the next step that might allow you to spend three hours in those shoes instead of 15 minutes. So I think that is, and that's what I appreciate about TFC is like, I think we, we've tried to develop this culture where people can feel comfortable disagreeing with each other and never taking it personally and always maintaining an openness in your mindset to be like, I don't, I'm not certain that I know the truth about anything, but I haven't been given good enough information to prove me otherwise. And if you do, mm-hmm. I'm open to hearing it. So I think that's one thing I recently changed my mind on. It's just, it's not a simple explanation may not be the best explanation in that case. Yeah. I'm much on that. I think I when I whenever I put up a pair of like Vivos or something, or, or, or just a picture, I'm wearing a pair of Vivos or something. Everyone asks like, "Oh, you 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 wear barefoot shoes?" And I say, "If you if you came into my like my where I keep all my shoes, you would just see such a mix of different things." And literally, I wake up and I just pick up the ones that I feel like wearing that day. It could have more support, less support, so. Yeah, I like people to wear things that they're comfortable in if they if they are aware of their body. Mm. If they're not aware of their body, then they don't even know really what feels good for them. And that goes for all of their movement. They don't know because they have no experience of anything else. You don't know how good a hip that actually move, could move would feel like because you can't move your hip. Right. So a lot of people don't have good awareness of their feet. So yeah, they're wearing any kind of thing. But when you start to get educated, and most of that I think comes from being able to move your feet well, being able to move your, sorry, not your feet, being able to move your body on top of your feet well. And now you have a selection of shoes, maybe. It doesn't mean you have to have 20 different shoes, but a few different ones, different levels of support. And you're not going to you're not going to end up in a shitty place by just putting on a shoe with a little bit more support that day 
you're 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 just absolutely not you're you just have different things that you can wear at different times depending on how you feel or where you're going and for the most part you're working on how your feet move and you're going to end up feeling good and some of those options should be a barefoot shoe some of them should be just going barefoot full stop so i'm with you um and what i I changed my mind on i I don't know viewing shoes as a tool sorry to interrupt just to put a pin in that it's like if people just viewed shoes as a tool to protect their feet and to bring them closer to whatever their aspiration is i think it actually creates an intentionality with like i'm gonna wear this shoe this pair of shoes because um because this is my intention i think too many people are like i just want the most comfy shoes it's like they're the ones that end up walking around with these giant couches on their feet and it's crazy comfy just like sitting on a couch all day would be comfy but the minute you got to get up it sucks um yeah so yeah sorry to interrupt yeah no i was just going to say i don't know i don't know what i've changed my mind on i changed like just all the time small small little things but um yeah every single day i've self-doubt with things not in a crippling way but just trying to figure things out um so yeah probably one thing it's more of a macro thing but it probably would be i used to think that my like our business would grow in the direct relation to relationship to like how hard i worked and i think that was a very limiting belief not a bad belief to have because i'm a hard worker and i try and encourage people to work hard i think it's important but it also led me to feeling then like if we were starting to maybe sell some programs on online or something like that where okay i woke up and we sold a few programs you almost feel like a bit weird sometimes because i haven't necessarily traded that time for money so i think that has been a very limiting belief and i know that sounds simple and i know that sounds obvious but actually when you look at how wealth is created in the world you don't see people that have that attitude uh towards things they it's more about just how much value can i give and again that goes back to like there's unlimited upside if i can give i can give unlimited value i can give unlimited i could get unlimited upside back so that's probably a big one that i'm fighting against all the time that actually because it leads me to be like if i have a day where i only have to work two hours in a day which doesn't happen that often but i actually need a break i actually need to not work i need to go and spend a day at the beach i feel like i should be doing more even though our business is in a healthy position where i can take a few days off and i don't need to work so that's um that's probably a big one not necessarily movement related but something i'm fighting against all the time i appreciate that i think that's a really key insight because it is something you got to wrap your head around, especially in the digital world, where you can create a program. And if money is an IOU people send you for value you've given them, you create one program. It's one unit of your energy. And 10,000 people at any time of the day, any time of the year can actually get value from that program with uh, no extra energy input put in by you. Um, and you can view that as, well, I'm getting something for nothing, or you can view that as I'm being really efficient with how I use my energy. And I'm finding these energetic multipliers that allows me to take care of myself, to work on other things and to contribute other, um, contribute value in other ways to the world. So yeah, I appreciate you mentioning that. Cause that is like a, it can be sort of like a glass ceiling where you self-impose this limit in the amount of wealth that you can bring in. And, you know, if wealth is something that needs to be recycled and actually should accumulate to the most effective value providers in the world, um, I think there's, you know, almost the stigma where it's like making lots of money is a bad thing. But at the end of the day, if you're recycling that back into, if you're giving true value, um, where you're not like tricking people into give you money, but people are actually getting value and they're thanking you by giving you money um, and you do something good with that money, it's like, I think most people come into a lot of wealth because they've been really good at allocating resources and delivering valuable things to the world. Those people should be given more energy so that they can recycle it back into the world. So yeah, appreciate that. I want to honor our time. Uh, Thank you so much for offering your time today. Um, Thanks everyone for listening and joining us today. Uh, And yeah, David, if people want to know more about what you do, uh, things you offer, where do they go? And uh, yeah, we'll wrap it up from there uh probably the best place is just to go to instagram nick i think uh david gray rehab is the instagram account account david g-r-e-y rehab um because people might hate me when they see my they might say oh he sounds good and then they see my face and they hate me so uh (laughs) so instagram is a good place we have some like programs available uh on our website which you can go and check out from there just kind of diy a foot one 
uh, lower body one and upper body one. And then we have some workshops, which mm, we're going to announce a couple in the States coming up. Um, we have one in Vancouver that's actually sold out and we have one in Montreal close to you guys, I think. So that's coming up in June. And uh, But yeah, I think Instagram is the best place and people can go there. And I just want to say thank you very much for having me on. Really enjoyed the chat. Um, give me some things to think about as well. So um, so yeah, nice to nice to connect and I hope it's helpful for some people as well. Yeah, I mean, I, got, I really enjoyed the conversation. I'm very grateful for your time. Maybe we do this again in 12 months time. Uh, we'll see what you change your mind about then, if anything. And, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll note it down. I'll write it down. <laughs> and we'll see what your definition of health is like uh, at that point. But yeah, thanks for everyone for listening. Thanks, Dave, for being here. Hey guys, David here again. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Thanks to Nick and the Foot Collective for having me on. Um, they're doing lots of great work, so it was a pleasure. Uh, obviously, if you're, we were talking a lot about feet there, and if you are someone interested, don't make a mystery out of it. We have a foot program, and it'll show you the exact exercises and progressions and uh, program, basically, that I use with my foot clients, my ankle clients, my shin clients, my Achilles, my calf, and even a lot of knee clients as well. So uh, four phases, builds people up just from kind of mobilizing, sensing the feet, building strength, connecting the foot with the hip, and then building up through plyometrics. So it's uh, it'll be the first link in the show notes. Honestly, you won't regret it. It will completely change how you move, how you train, how you look at feet, how you assess feet, and how you would treat or coach people who need that as well, which is everyone. So check out the foot program in the bio. And apart from that, thanks again for listening and chat to you guys next time.